are you a wanderer or a nester? By wanderer, I mean someone who is always looking for the new thing, always on the move, restless and rootless, never settled. Someone who loves to travel, to go to new places and and try new things. And by nester, I mean someone who loves home or creating a little nest at home. Uh, If you're a lady, usually this is like your your kitchen, like filled with cookies I think of, and bread, and you're just like a homebody. If you're like me, it means finding a comfortable place on the couch. You love to, to just curl up, and you typically are the kind of person that always looks forward to coming home. You like being at home. Tim Chester writes, these two contrasting instincts probably actually reflect the same desire. Both the wanderer and the nester have a deep longing for home. Wanderers go looking for home while nesters try to create it. Deep in the heart of every person is a longing for home. And this longing for home reflects the human story. Humanity suffers from a deep sense of dislocation. We often feel homeless because we were cast out of our first home. Long ago, God placed our oldest ancestors, the first man and woman, in an Edenic garden, which was named for its perfection. The Garden of Eden was a place of both provision and plenty, a place of safety and security. It was a place where God and man lived together in perfect peace. God, because of his unfailing love and mercy created people that they might worship him by enjoying him and that they might do this forever and ever he also created them that he might magnify his own glory and display his wonderful awesomeness throughout the universe humanity was made by god for god and is only at home with god But when the first humans rejected God by rebelling against his word, they were exiled from the home for which they were created. They were cast out of Eden. Their sin ushered into the world, and it fractured everything. Adam and Eve found themselves east of Eden under sin's curse, and death began to reign. As you can probably tell, humanity has never returned to Eden. And yet we all still feel a longing for our ancient home, a longing for perfection. Sometimes the sense that we do not belong here presses down on us like an anvil. And other times it's almost as unnoticeable as a feather. But the longing for home, for everlasting Edenic life, persists. This aching for home and peace can and will be fulfilled for all who lay down their weapons of rebellion against God and surrender themselves to him, to his rightful rule and reign. You see, the the creator king of the universe has not left us hopeless and he will not leave us homeless. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come to rescue us, that God has made a way for us to come home into his presence. He did this by sending Jesus to become an exile and bear the weight of our sin on the cross so that sin's grip might loosen on humanity. 
By resurrecting from the dead, Jesus ended death's reign. And he has promised to come again and to make all things new, guaranteeing that all who trust in him will be at home with him once and evermore. The book of Exodus prepares us for this coming of Christ. It prepares us for humanity's ultimate rescue from exile, from slavery. I'm sorry, it prepares us for our freedom from exile and slavery and takes us into freedom and sonship. The tabernacle tent and the priesthood are but shadows of both the Garden of Eden and of Jesus, and they point us forward to our future home, the new Eden, the new heavens, the new earth. This morning we're covering Exodus chapters 28 through 31 and 39 in addition. 39 is the fulfillment of what God tells them to do in chapters 28 and 29, uh, and so we won't spend a ton of time in it. We're going to kind of hunker down in, verses, in chapter 28 and 29 for the most part. Our main idea this morning will be this, only the holy can come home. Only the perfected can live together with God in perfect peace forever. We're going to do it in three parts. We're going to look at a, a show home or a display. Think about what fashion shows us. And then we're going to think about shadows. Let's pray together and we'll get started. Father, we are broken people sinful. We don't deserve to know you, and yet you've chosen to reveal yourself to us us through your word. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit now to be our teacher, to focus our minds on what you might have to say to us. Help us to understand and to know you more deeply. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you want to look with me at the first three verses of chapter 28 in Exodus, they read this way. God says to Moses, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. The clothing of the tabernacle priest will be holy. It will be glorious. It will be beautiful and made with excellence just as the tabernacle itself. And this is because the tabernacle and the priesthood are interconnected and interdependent. They form one monolith and this will become more and more apparent as we study the garments of the priesthood. Uh, With that in mind, with those first three verses of chapter 28 in mind, if you want to flip over to chapter 31, I'm going to read the first five verses there. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in the cutting of stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. 
You see, the Spirit is perfecting the skills of the craftsman for both the building of the tabernacle and the putting together or the making of the priestly clothing. The the Holy Spirit's involved in the creation of God's tabernacle and God's priesthood just as it was involved in the creation of all things. And what we, we have here is one of the many, many echoes of Eden that reverberate throughout the book of Exodus. Exodus has been, um, is really, really closely related to the first couple chapters of Genesis. We haven't put a whole lot of emphasis on that to this point uh, in our journey through the book, but what I, I'm going to try to do this morning is show you some of the, these echoes as we work through uh, these chapters. And so what we see here is just as God did his work in creation by the Spirit, so too he does his work in the tabernacle, which is a little Eden by the Holy Spirit. The tabernacle and the priesthood both point us back to Eden because they bring God and humanity together in fellowship. And they point us forward by teaching us about how Jesus will bring us home into fellowship with God. Tabernacle serves as a copy of heavenly realities or shadow, as Hebrews says. At the tabernacle, heaven and earth, they really do meet priesthood really does show us how we can enter into God's presence. And just as the Spirit worked in creation, he worked to fill the craftsmen with all the skill necessary to accomplish the work of God. I mean, I, mean, don't, don't, I don't want you to miss this, right? God gives his Holy Spirit to regular guys and gals, not to do anything really sensational or crazy, but to accomplish an excellent and ordinary work. Uh, Dr. Marita comments this way, The Spirit sanctified the ability, intelligence, and the knowledge of the craftsman. Sometimes God may do something supernatural and totally beyond a person's normal ability. But more often, I think he perfects an existing God-given gift, as we see here. We consider that we learn at least two truths from the Spirit's empowerment of the craftsmen who are building the temple and the priestly clothes. The first is that we need God's Spirit to accomplish God's work. The psalmist's words are true. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers build it in vain. And then secondly, the Spirit fills us to do tasks that are not always considered sensational or fascinating in the eyes of others. Uh, I, I just love this text says that they were empowered to make stuff, right? I love it because people often have the craziest ideas about what it means to have the Holy Spirit's work in their lives. Many are sensationalists. They're what uh, Dr. Marita calls, they, they have incredible Hulk syndrome. They think to be blessed by the Holy Spirit means that you turn green and into a completely different creature, that something crazy goes on. But in this text, we find that God blesses these men and women to do the ordinary. He blesses them with intelligence and ability to make what he has commanded. What I don't want to do here is deny the miraculous ways in which the Holy Spirit can, has, and does work. But what I I do want to do is take the pendulum and swing it back the other way a little bit and, and say that he also empowers normal, everyday obedience to God which is a miracle in and of itself. Any obedience to God on our part is the result of the Spirit's work in our lives. I mean, plenty of the Spirit's work in the New Testament is not what people would call spectacular. Right? He enables the church to speak God's message with boldness. 
He gives gifts of speaking and serving, of service, teaching, giving, mercy, helping, hosting, administrating, and managing. Right? I know lots of people, oh, I would love to have the, the gift of healing to pray over somebody and, and they would just be healed right away. I, I would love to have the, this or that gift, but I've never heard anybody say, I really want the gift of administration. The awesome, managing. Some of you have those gifts. And they're just as important. And the point here is that the Spirit of God enables us to obey God and do the work of God. And even though the Spirit's work uh, may not be considered sensational or cause fireworks to go off, it's crucially, it's vitally important. So let me encourage you to cultivate one gift I think every Christian has in some measure. And that is the gift of encouragement. We're commanded throughout Scripture to encourage one another And one of the easiest ways that that we can do this is by simply showing up to our worship gatherings together, right? Week after week, we commit to affirm one another's faith. Week after week, we come and we encourage one another with the gospel. And I can't tell you how encouraging it is for, for me and I know for others of you when everybody shows up all at once, rare as that is. Some of y'all are retired and travel all the time, all right? Pointing fingers at you. But it's encouraging when the members of God's family are able to join together in the study of, the singing of, the the preaching of the word. What you do on Sunday morning, it preaches. Every time you, you come to this gathering in obedience to God's word through the power of the Holy Spirit, you're preaching a sermon about the supremacy and priority of Christ. You're preaching it to your family, to your friends, to your brothers and sisters in Christ, and to all those in the community. And every time you find reason, illegitimate reason, to stay home and play hooky, you're preaching a sermon about the superiority and priority of something else to your neighbors and your friends and your family and your children. I wonder what kind of sermons are you preaching on Sunday morning with what you do with your time. So let me exhort you to allow the Holy Spirit to empower you to glorify God in this normal, unspectacular, not all that sensational obedience. This is normal but important work. It's simple, but yet it's profound. God accomplishes great things through your simple, ordinary obedience. The responsibility of encouraging one another is just one example among a litany of things. It's by God's Spirit that we obey Him and accomplish His will and work, and it's by God's Spirit that His house will be built and His people will live. All the parts of God's home are aimed at showing us how to live in right relationship with him. And this extends even on down to the clothing of the priests. I mean, one of the easiest ways to see this intimate connection between the priesthood and the temple is in the materials used for the priestly garments. They should use, according to 28 verse 5, gold, blue, purple, scarlet, scarlet yarn, and fine linen. 
all of these materials are also featured in the making of the tabernacle. And so by being decked out as the tabernacle itself, the high priest in his service becomes the focal point of God's presence among the people. He's almost a mini tabernacle, if you will. Uh, the, the priest's clothing is making clear that he represents the people before God and God to the people. The high priest was uh, to don a multicolored ephod as part of this ensemble. And an ephod would be embroidered uh, with gold. It, it's like an apron or, or like a sleeveless vest that goes down really far. Uh, not really in fashion today, but that's, that's what it is. And what, on it, there were two onyx stones, one on each shoulder, and they were engraved with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, six tribes on this shoulder, six on this shoulder, right? And they were pointing out the truth that the priest, this high priest, represented them before God. Aaron would bear the names of the people on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. Now, over this apron-type deal, this ephod was placed the breastpiece of judgment or breastpiece for making decisions, right? This is a garment that would sport, I'm sorry, I'm going to mess this up, four rows of three, right? I've given you that little diagram on the back of your um, insert that you can see these a little bit better. Uh, the, these gems on the front of this breastpiece of judgment, there's four rows, I think, one, two, three, four, and then there are three across. And that is all 12 of the tribes of Israel, right? So like the ephod, this is another act of representation. It's making clear that Aaron will bear the names of the people, and that this breastpiece is up by his heart, on his heart, and will carry the people into the presence of Yahweh. One of the striking things here is that these stones that are mentioned in verses 17 through 19 are also featured in the Garden of Eden and in the New Eden, in the New Jerusalem, in the book of Revelation. Again, we are hearing echoes of Eden in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is pointing both forward and backward. It's telling us the story of how from glory to glory, God is working to be present with his people. There are also two other stones placed not on the outside of the breastpiece, but inside the breastpiece. They are the mysterious, I'm going to mess up saying them, I always do, Urim and Thummim. It's helpful to think of the, the breast piece of decision-making as just be, uh, basically a giant fancy pocket on the front of this ephod that would go over the ephod on the priest's shirt. Uh, I always think of like pens in a pocket protector on, on one of those shirts you know what I'm talking about. It's just like a giant version of that. And these two, this Urim and Thummim, go in there. And they were the means by which Israel could discern uh, the will of of the Lord. And so uh, four rows of three stones on the outside of the pocket, these two stones inside the pocket. And we really know precious little about the Urim and the Thummim, save for the fact that they were used in determining what God wanted Israel to do as a nation. Uh, it's been suggested by some that they were cast like dye, and then the high priest would know how to read them in order to uh, understand what God's will was for the people. Others have suggested that the priest would simply ask God a question and then pull one of them out, and based on which one he pulled out, it was like a yes or no deal, I guess. Based on which one he pulled out, they would know, yes, we're supposed to do this, or, or no, we're not supposed to do this. Uh, but as I thought about this and read commentator after commentator make suggestions, I thought, really, we don't know anything about this. Like, these two things could be work like magic eight balls, right? And you just shake them both up and, and get them to try to agree, right? Is the outlook good? It is certain 
Y'all played with those, didn't you? Most likely. Ask again later, right? Just keep shaking them. It's, it's not clear how they worked, but, but what does seem clear is that this was not just the priest's own personal thing that he could use to discern the will of God, right? He's not back there, you know, however, whether it's casting die or plucking one out, whatever it is. Not, who should I marry? Uh, you know, Mac or PC? What should I eat for dinner? He, he's not using them like that for his own individual uh, determining of God's will for his life. He, he's using them on behalf of the nation because he is Israel's representative. He is Israel's intercessor. I think an important thing to, to note here also is that this is not the first resort of discerning God's will. Now, it's permissible, but the people are first to obey God by obeying the written covenant and listening to the prophets. I had that second cup of coffee this morning. It's drying my throat all out. Sorry. For those of you that are thinking, how awesome this would be to have an urm and a thummim of my own, a breast piece of judgment. I could just figure out God's will for my life. Uh, let me tell you, we have something better than that today, all right? We have something better than these mysterious stones. We have the Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, indwelling us. We have the Word of God written for us. We have a great high priest who hears our concerns and takes them to the Father. That's better. I do wonder, though, uh, do we utilize these amazing blessings? I mean, do you seek God's will in his word and prayer? <laughs> I hear so many Christians complain. I, I just want to know what the will of God is for my life. And then if you ask them, well, what, how have you been spending time in the scripture? Oh, I haven't read my Bible in weeks. Or are you praying about that? Not really, just mostly worrying in God's direction. Love what J.C. Ryle has said. He says, prayer is a kind of spiritual pulse. Is your spiritual heart beating? Another cryptic piece of information about the high priest garments is given to us uh, in regards to the robe that he is to wear. And we see this in verse 34. It's to feature on its hem, uh, as a guy didn't know what hem was, but I guess it's kind of at the bottom of the robe. Uh, on, on its hem, it's supposed to have bells and pomegranates uh, alternating. Verse 34, uh, make it so that gold bells and pomegranates alternate around the lower hem of the robe. The robe must be worn by Aaron whenever he ministers, and its sound will be heard when he enters the sanctuary before the Lord and when he exits, so that he does not die. Aaron's to wear a robe beneath the ephod whose decorations include these gold bells that their purpose is apparently to ring when he enters or leaves the most holy place. We talked about that last week. That's where the ark is. Uh, and it's so, quote, he will not die. May have been a reminder. People don't really know what, how this worked. <laughs> and so uh, some have suggested it's a reminder uh, for the priest to make sure that he's got all of his gear on the right way. Like the bells would be ringing as he's going in there, and he's like, all right, do I have ephod, breastpiece, you know? Do I have all this together? Because if I go in there and it's messed up, I'm going to die. Uh, others have suggested it's a greeting to God, kind of like ringing somebody's doorbell before you go into their house or knock on the door. Uh, and others have said it was a reminder to the people who were outside of the tent. They could hear the bells ringing on his robes that he was in there on their behalf. No, no one really knows for sure. Uh, secondly, the pomegranate 
uh, is a prized fruit in the ancient Near Eastern world, and it denoted abundance and beauty, and it is my contention that this is another echo of Eden in uh, the tabernacle. Uh, the tabernacle, when it's replaced years later, uh, or when the temple replaces the tabernacle years later, it's going to have 400 decorative pomegranates on it. And the pomegranates remind us of how humanity once thrived in Eden and of God's promise to bring his people home so that they might flourish for all time. Next thing we learn in this chapter is that the priest is to wear a hat or a turban with a golden plaque on the front, a big medallion. And on the front of it, it's going to say, Holy to the Lord. Aaron's also going to need to ensure that he wears a sash to hold this whole ensemble together. Uh, you can think of it like if you have a bathrobe, those, those little ties that go around it. That's just all the sash is. It's going to secure everything together. And of course, under all of this, we're told, he's going to need to wear underwear in verses 42 and 43. But I don't know if people generally went around commando in this culture or not, uh, but it's the second time we've seen this command in Exodus, right? That the priest needs to wear underwear lest he be exposed. Uh, I'm, I should read these verses to you. 42, uh, make them linen undergarments to cover their naked bodies. They must extend from waist to thighs. These must be worn by Aaron and his sons whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister in the sanctuary area so that they do not incur guilt and die. We, we have here another echo of Eden, I think. If you remember in the Garden of Eden, uh, before uh, Adam and Eve sin against God, they're naked and unashamed in Genesis 2.20. And then after they've sinned, they are naked and afraid and ashamed, hiding from God. They tried to clothe themselves in order to cover up their shame. Nakedness is, is correspondence symbolic for this shame or guilt that's incurred. And so they're trying to cover it up, but they can't. It's like a, uh, if you took a white shirt and you dipped it in blood, the stain on that white shirt would be just blatantly obvious. So too was the guilt of Adam and Eve, and so too is our own guilt. And I think that just like Adam and Eve, we try to clothe ourselves and or hide from God. Uh, we do it not by using fig leaves or whatever it is they use, but by just pretending God doesn't exist, or the, the other thing we like to do is worship other things in his place. And so instead of enjoying the peace of God by trusting Christ and eagerly awaiting Jesus' return to earth to turn earth into heaven, uh, we look to created things to give us meaning, satisfaction, and security. Uh, this just usually looks like taking good gifts from God and serving them in his place. And so instead of finding our identity in Christ, we look for it in family or career or money or something we do. All of this is aimed at trying to prove ourselves worthy, valuable, really important. Yet still somehow we're never really satisfied when we do this. Uh, Scott Sauls highlights this truth in his uh, wonderful little book we read together this summer called Jesus Outside the Lines. This is what he says. We human beings struggle every day to believe in our worth. A single criticism, an isolated bad hair day, an insufficient grade, or an unanswered text message can undermine our sense of being loved and accepted. In a 1991 interview, uh, with Vanity Fair, Madonna put this universal human struggle into words. She said this, 
all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. And it's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. No matter how excellent Madonna becomes in her art and fame, somehow it's never going to be good enough. I think as part of our human nature, we act and feel as if we must convince the whole world and ourselves that there's nothing in us that deserves condemnation. We know that we're not perfect, but there's something in all of us that still wants, even needs, to feel and be seen as perfect. And so every day we play dress up by serving our various idols in order to prove our worthiness and our loveliness to try and cover sin's stain, to try to cover up the imperfection within. Every day we, we kind of work at getting ourselves back home. Blaise Pascal, a philosopher from back in the day, said this, we can't handle imperfection because we are from another world. And that world, unlike the world in which we currently live, is a world of perfection. All these miseries, Pascal says, prove man's greatness. They are miseries of a great Lord, of a deposed king. You see, we're made perfectly and for perfection. Humanity was made in the image of God. And so, so to err in the grand eternal scheme of things really isn't human after all, Saul's writes. To err is, cosmically speaking, an anomaly. That's why we can't bear imperfection in ourselves or in others, because we were made for perfection. But sin has broken us all, and so we long for that perfect state that, that man was once in. These priestly clothes point to the idea that the priest must, must be holy or righteous before the Lord. And they make clear to us that we cannot make ourselves perfect or holy again. They're showing us we can't get back home through our own efforts. Both the, the priestly garments and the account in Genesis tell us that God will make us holy and bring us back into his presence that he will do this work. I love Genesis 3, 21 uh, says this, uh, after Adam and Eve are uh, on their way out, it says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. See, God kills in order to clothe Adam and Eve. Sacrifice is made to cover their shame. See, see what's going on here is that God will bring his people home through sacrifice. Ultimately, Jesus, the only high priest who will ever be truly holy to the Lord, is killed so that we might be holy to the Lord when by faith we clothe ourselves with his perfect righteousness. We will never be perfect, never feel adequate, never rest satisfied until we stop looking for our identity in created things and by faith identify with Jesus. We're never going to get home again 
unless we stop playing dress up and resolve to put on Christ who for our sake became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Only the righteous clothes of Christ can remove our shame and remove the stain of sin. Priestly clothing demonstrates his function as a representative of the people who carries them into God's holy presence, and it points us to our need to Jesus for Jesus to carry us into God's presence. And what's clear is that all people need a priest to go before God on our behalf because all people are broken. All of us are sinners, and this is problematic if you've been paying attention because if you might have noticed, the priest is, well, a person, right? Priests are sinful human beings. And so all who want to serve as priests have to be consecrated or set apart that is made holy for holy service. Consecration of priests is outlined for us throughout chapter 29. This includes washing and dressing, anointing and sacrifice. The washing from head to toe is the first act. It it symbolizes a spiritual cleansing. Uh, Chapter 30, verses 17 through 21 describe the basin that's required for this. Uh, After being washed, the priests were clothed with garments that are described. We just went over them in chapter 28. Then once they are dressed, they are ordained with anointing oil. Uh, Verses 23 through 25 describe uh, this anointing oil. In long story short, it's really expensive and really extravagant oil that they get anointed with. And at this point, we're told that there are sacrifices to be made. Three types of sacrifices. There is a, a bull and two rams. Uh, The bull is a sin offering, then you have a ram for, one of the rams is a burnt offering, and the other ram is a wave offering or an offering of ordination. Sequence is significant, one commentator writes. The sin offering cleanses the priest from sin. It's understandable why the ordination process begins this way. Next, the burnt offering is expression of devotion and commitment on the part of the worshiper. The second ram, along with a loaf of bread, a cake made with oil, and a wafer, are to be a wave offering of ordination. Not clear what a wave offering is, but according to Leviticus 7, a wave offering is a type of fellowship offering, the purpose of which concerns the establishing of communion between God and his people. And we saw this before when we looked at in chapter 24 at the covenant confirmation, which we thought of as a wedding ceremony of sorts. We said that when God was wed to his people, it, that relationship was forged on the basis of his word, blood, and food. And we've got the same idea here. The priests are made holy by the words of God. God declares Aaron and his house will be priests. Blood sacrifices are then made for them to be made holy and in right relationship with God. And the fact that they are in fellowship with God is then symbolized by the sharing of a meal. We also, we don't want to miss the symbolism of transference that is present in these offerings. In each case, Aaron and his sons are to lay their hands on the head of the animal, and it's as if uh, their sin passes from them to the animal, and then the animal bears the penalty for that sin by dying. We learn from uh, verses 20 and 21 that the blood from these atoning sacrifices, or from the sacrificial bull, is then placed on their right earloaf, um, their fingers, and then their toes. The blood of atonement is being symbolically applied to the whole person. It's a complete cleansing. Before the priest can represent the people and atone for the people's sins, 
his own sin must be atoned for. Uh, The whole ceremony with the bull and the rams, all of it is repeated for seven days, which finally results in the holiness of the priest and the purification of the altar. And so once they've been consecrated, they can begin the regular business of the temple, which we're told includes be twice daily, morning and evening, dawn and dusk, the, the offering of a year-old lamb along with grain and oil and wine to the Lord as a whole burnt offering intended to appeal for forgiveness. So Israel would begin and end each day with God in devotion through their priests. I think a really easy application of this a really just smart thing to do is to bookend your day with devotion to the Lord. Prayer, study, and meditation, one of the three. I, I think if you try this in your own life, you're likely going to find that your mind is more focused on the things of God and that your heart is more attuned to God's own. The goal of this whole priestly tabernacle process is summed up for us at the end of chapter 29 in verses 41 through 45. In these verses, we see that God eats with, speaks with, meets with, and dwells with his people. So that, verse 46, they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The big idea of this whole system, then, is to show us that God is working to bring his people home into his presence so that they can know him. The tabernacle shows us the home that we were made for, the broken home we live in, and the glorious home that's been purchased for us. It shows us the home we're made for because of the songs of Eden that echo in its hallways. One commentator put it brilliantly. The tabernacle is a microcosm of the created order a parcel of Edenic splendor established amid the chaos of the world. The tabernacle is where God and man live together in peace. It provides a taste of the paradise that was lost, a glimpse of the former glory that man once enjoyed. Tabernacle brings heaven and earth together as they once were. It shows us the home in which humanity once lived. And it also shows us the broken home humanity currently inhabits by displaying our brokenness in terms of its sacrificial system. The continuous sacrifices on the altar would play a lamentful ballad about a grievous betrayal that fractured the universe. The blood-soaked altar reminds us of our sin-soaked state and the just penalty that's due to evil. The atonement money Israel would pay upon the taking of a census reminds us that all men are owed death and that life is costly, that it must be ransomed. The bronze basin shows us our need to be made cleansed from the guilt of sin. The beautiful garments of the priest tell us of our own need to be clothed in Jesus' radiant righteousness. The tabernacle shows us that we need perfected, that we need to be made holy in order to enjoy a right relationship with God, and it also tells us that only the holy can come home into the presence of God. Tabernacle also shows us the glorious home that's been purchased for us. Throughout Exodus, God is showing us how he intends to remake the ashes of our sin-torched world into beauty, into the new Eden, the new Jerusalem, our new home. 
See, throughout all of history, God is, has been and is working sovereignly to save a special people for his own glory. He does it in Exodus, and he's doing it now. In Exodus, God is living among the Israelites in the tabernacle. And his living among the Israelites is intended to make us think of Eden, of what was lost, and it's intended to make us look forward to what Christ has purchased for us, what was gained. The tabernacle and and the priesthood foreshadow Jesus, right? The priesthood, because we already did the tabernacle, the priesthood tells us all about the true and better high priest that is to come. See, Jesus is the true and better Aaron. He is superior in holiness. He needn't offer a sacrifice for himself because he is sinless. He's superior in anointing. He was anointed not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. He is a superior representative. He carries the names of all the people, not on his heart in a breast piece, but in his heart, for we are all in Christ. Instead of stones on his shoulders, he carried a cross on his shoulders to bear our judgment in our place. Aaron was only a shadow of Jesus. And as long as Jesus is in heaven, he will bear the names of the sons and daughters of God in his heart. If you've turned to Jesus in faith, he bears your name. Your name is in heaven. The Christians who who have already died are more happy than us because they're with Jesus. But they're not more secure than us. So we don't have to to freak out every time we fail spectacularly. Instead, we can remember that we have a spectacular Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. Christian, your salvation is certain. It's seated at the right hand of God in Christ Jesus whom you've been united to by faith. You can't lose your salvation. If you could, you would have already lost it. That's how sinful you are. That's how sinful I am. Jesus calls us and Jesus keeps us. It's before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. We are as secure as Christ is. The point here is that Jesus fulfills the purpose for which the priesthood was established and for which the tabernacle was built. Jesus is the reason Exodus and indeed the entire Bible are written. I mean, especially in Exodus. We've seen it throughout, right? Jesus is the tabernacle. He's the fullness of God dwelling among humanity. He's the priest who makes atonement for sins. He's the sacrifice that is the atonement for sin. He is the Passover lamb. He is the manna from heaven, the bread of life, the water of life, the rock that is struck. He's our perfect mediator. He's a better prophet than Moses, a better priest than Aaron, and a better king than David. The Bible uses all of these pictures and all of these stories to tell us the same story about our great and glorious Savior because all of his greatness cannot be bound up in just one image or just one story. His beauty is limitless. His glory is beyond measure. And he desires relationship with us. With us. 
This is the scandal of the gospel. The perfect creator of all things comes to earth from heaven and allows himself to become the curse that we deserve. Allows himself to become imperfected. Allows himself to be unmade, as it were. As his beard is ripped from his face and he's spat upon. It's an ugly picture. And that's because our sin is ugly. He takes the wrath of God that you and I deserve in our place so that when we unite ourselves with Him by faith, we can say we have been crucified with Christ. No more penalty is due my sin. So that by faith we can say, I've been raised with Christ so that my future hope, my future home of perfection is safe with Christ in heaven. It's not going anywhere. The gospel is all about how man can live with and know the God he was made for, but has been separated from by his rebellion. See, only the holy can make it back home. And only Jesus can make you holy. Trust him. And together with his people, experience a foretaste of the new Eden even now as we await his return and the turning of earth into the perfect heavenly home it was always meant to be. Worship the God you were made to enjoy. This is what Christ has done for us. He's made a way for us to come home. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so good. That you are a conjunction of diverse excellencies. That your perfections are manifold and without end. That even though you've revealed yourself to us, we only know in part. And that we'll get to spend an eternity delightfully getting to know more about who you are. Father, we pray that until then, you you would help us to see and savor your glory. Pray that you would help us to become and practice what you've declared us to be in truth through Christ Jesus. Pray that you would help us to daily remind ourselves that we've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ and that those who look on you are radiant. So help us to wear that armor of light and to not give sin or darkness a foothold in our lives. Help us to proclaim and encourage one another with the truth of the gospel. And help us to take this good news to our community and to all nations so that all the world will know that you have saved your people out of sin and slavery and into sonship and righteousness, so that all the world will know that you live with and in your church. Help us to display your glory accurately. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.